Good morning. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. That's nine books into the Old Testament. Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. All right, 1 Samuel is where we're going to be this morning as we begin our uh, study in the Old Testament this fall. We're going to be studying the life of David as documented in the Old Testament books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And uh, this is a study that's going to take us all the way up close to Thanksgiving. Can you believe that? All right, so this morning marks 20 Sundays from Christmas Eve. Can you believe that? All right, is that a little depressing to you? Wow, that's coming quick, right? Well, let's move on and not think about that, all right? So we're going to be studying uh, through the life of David over the next several weeks. Many of you, when I talk about David, you automatically know a lot of things about, you're thinking of a lot of things about David. You understand that he's the shepherd warrior, a worshiper king of Israel, But as I mentioned, David, maybe you were genuinely wondering, maybe you're new to church, maybe you're new to the Bible, and you're like, David who? All right, who is David? All right, David is one of those interesting, one of those complex, one of the most important characters in all the Bible. It's been said that more has been written about David in the Bible than any other person. 66 chapters in God's Word are dedicated to his life. He wrote over 70 Psalms in the book of Psalms. And David, uh, David was the second king of Israel. Uh, he was an incredibly significant figure. He is a, a significant figure in the Bible. And uh, we'll learn that through this study that ultimately his life is going to point us to the life of Christ. That he was a great king, but he points to a greater king. That he, uh, he built and helped lead a great kingdom, but it points to a greater kingdom that Christ is building. All right, so, but we're also going to find as we track with this story that there's a lot here in his life as we study it, a lot of truths in First and Second Samuel that are going to really help us in our walk with Christ. We're first introduced to David in First Samuel chapter 16. And here what we're going to see in First Samuel chapter 16 is God rejecting one king and picking a new king. And God, in choosing that new king, shows us that he is most concerned with the heart. That's what we're going to focus on this morning. God is most concerned with our hearts. As, so stand with your Bibles open. 1 Samuel chapter 16 is where we're going to be. So if you can get there real quick. 1 Samuel chapter 16. And we're just going to read two verses during our scripture reading now. And then we'll back up and move through the whole uh, of the 13 verses that tell this part of his story. Verse 6. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel... Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I pray that you would help us this morning, Lord. We recognize here at the beginning of this study and even on this day, in this very moment, that we are completely dependent on you. We are in desperate need of your power working in our hearts and in our midst to help us to understand your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand it, to comprehend it, to believe it. Lord, to see the truth within it. Lord, we come to hear from you today. You're our teacher, so I pray that you would teach us. That you would not just help us to understand and believe it. You would help us to apply it in our lives as we sit under the teaching of your holy, inspired, and eric, complete, awesome, powerful word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at three observations in this text this morning. And the first thing that we're going to see in this text is God pursuing His people. All right, number one, God pursues His people. Verse 1 says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Now, why is Samuel grieving 
over Saul. We've got to back up and track with the storyline of Scripture for a few moments. All right, Let's think about where we are in our Bibles. If you back up to Genesis, out of all the tribes, all the families, all the people groups in the world, God chooses a family of a man named Abraham. To, he chooses them to be his chosen people. All right, God makes a covenant with them to love them unconditionally. As you read your Bible, you see the faithfulness and the love of God for Israel on display. He delivers them out of slavery in Egypt. He sustains them and provides for them in the wilderness. He gives them a promised land, a country to call home. He gives them the law. He gives them a sacrificial system so they can live under justice and grace and mercy. He gives them a purpose to be a witness for him to all the nations in the world. He gives them leaders to lead them, to lead their nation, to lead their armies. Uh, God gives them himself as a leader. For the first several hundred years in the life of the nation, God functioned as and desired to serve as their king. God was their king. And as their king, he's been faithful to them. He's been faithful to love them and instruct them and provide for them and go before them and defend them. And you can read Genesis through Ruth. It records that. God's faithfulness as Israel's king to lead them well. And it was not ever God who was unfaithful. It was Israel who was unfaithful. And God continued to be faithful as the king of the nation. When we get to 1 Samuel, it's around 1050 B.C., and Israel has gotten tired of God being their king. And basically Israel saying, God, thanks for being our God. You've done a great job up to this point. But we want to be like every other nation. We want a guy on the throne. We want a strong, intimidating leader that the surrounding nations can see. A warrior king with a crown ruling as king of Israel. In chapter 8, God warns them, That's, you don't want this. If all you're after is the right optics. If, if all you're after is that you're going to end up with an ungodly king. If all you want is to keep up with other nations, you're going to end up with an ungodly king and it's not going to go well for you. But the people of God persisted and God gave them what they wanted. God gave them over to the desires of their hearts. And so the prophet Samuel chooses the kind of king that the nation wants, which was a king who wore the crown well, who looked good on the outside. In other words, they wanted a king that was tall, dark, and handsome. They wanted a king that looked like he just stepped off the cover of GQ. And so they picked the most kingly-looking man in all the land, and his name is Saul, who looked the part on the outside, but unfortunately, Saul did not have a sincere, strong love and affection in his heart on the inside. He was more style than substance. Got drunk on power, got terribly insecure, pushed against God, made terrible decisions, and in dramatic fashion disqualified himself from the seat of king in Israel. And as we come to chapter 16, God's withdrawn his presence from Saul. Saul's trying to rule apart from the power and the presence of God. And it is a dumpster fire in Israel. His life is a complete wreck. The nation is steeped in idol worship. It's a fragile country. And the need of the hour in Israel is a godly king with a genuine heart for God who will love God's people and lead them and serve them and be a blessing to them, not a burden, and who will ultimately lead them back to the capital K king who's God himself. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're introduced to that king. But before we get to David, I love what this first verse points out to us in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Since I've rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. Now notice how God is the one who's approaching 
Samuel. Notice how it's God who's approaching this grieving, mourning prophet who's mourning the, the wasted opportunities of Saul. Who's mourning how much of a train wreck Saul's reign has become. And he was involved in that. And he's mourning that. And he's grieving that. He's grieving what, how this has spiraled down and how much destruction has happened. But notice how in this moment as he's grieving, it's God who's initiating this conversation. Like, let's make something really clear here at the beginning of this study, right here at the beginning, that Samuel is not the main character of this story. That Saul's definitely not the main character of the story. That David's not even the main character of this story. The main character of the story is God himself. Think about what's led up to this moment. God's people have looked at God in his face, who's been only faithful to them, who has loved them, who has went before them and defended them. And they basically said, thanks God for all you've done, but we got it from here. Thanks God for all that you've done, but we'll take the reins and we'll find us a king like everybody else. And they've gotten themselves into a hot mess. They got a crazy guy on the throne. The nation is in disarray and God could have said and God should have said and God would have been justified to say, you made your bed and you lie in it. You, you reap what you've sown. You figure it out. But instead of pushing away from his people, God chooses to pursue his people. And to pour out his amazing grace through providing a new king that they didn't deserve, that they desperately needed, and that they couldn't provide for themselves. And is that not a beautiful picture and a wonderful reminder of how the Lord has dealt with us? How he took the initiative to pursue us in our sin. How he took the initiative to pursue us in our mess that we created. And he helped us and saved us when we did not deserve it and when we couldn't save ourselves. And now even in these days as Christians, in our life, when we pull away from God, do you have those seasons where God's, been, God's only been faithful to you? He's only been faithful to love you and to provide for you and to sustain you. And yet even after seasons like that, we'll rebel from God, we'll run from God, we'll push away from God. And what does He do? Does He leave us? Does He abandon us? No, He continues to come after us. He continues to pursue us. He never stops pursuing in a faithful way unfaithful people like us. So here in 1 Samuel 13, as God is executing this good and gracious plan to put a better king in power, to love and to serve and to bless Israel, it reminds us that we serve a God who pursues his people. Isn't that good news this morning? Amen. Amen. But what kind of king will God provide? Second observation is this. God picks the unexpected. God tells Samuel to head to Bethlehem because the next king of Israel is going to be one of the sons of Jesse. Now let's start to read in verse 2. And Samuel said to God, how long can I go, or how can I go? If Saul hears it, he's going to kill me. All right, but we can understand logically why I'd feel that way. Right? If if Saul finds out that Samuel the prophet's going to another town in the nation to find the next king, is that going to fly well with Saul? No. And the Lord said to him, "Take a heifer." He's got, God's got a plan. Listen, take a heifer for all of us city folks. That's a cow. All right, it's a female cow. Take a heifer with you and say, "I've come." to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for, for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem and the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? Right? God is helping Samuel right here. He says, hey, listen, don't announce that you're going to look for a king. I under, Saul's going to go crazy. So just go to Bethlehem, offer a ritual sacrifice, which has been a fairly common thing for the prophet of God to do, going into a town, uh, holding like a citywide service and ceremony to have this ritual sacrifice. And so God says, go there, set this up, make sure Jesse's family's there, and I will lead you to the next king of Israel. Now, did you notice that 
the elders, when they see Samuel roll into town, did you notice their reaction to him? It says they trembled. Like they're terrified. They're scared. Samuel was a very intimidating guy. Do you realize that? In the, in the Old Testament, he's a pretty, he's a pretty intimidating dude. I heard one Bible teacher this year, this uh, week, call him the spiritual Chuck Norris of Israel. All right? He's, a, he's an intimidating guy. Like his shadowy figure shows up on the outskirts of the town. Everybody gets a little scared. All right? He was like a real life action hero in the nation of Israel. You're a kid living in Israel. You probably got a poster of Samuel in action on your bedroom wall. All right? He struck fear into people. Read verses like 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 33, and you'll understand why he struck fear into people, where he takes his sword and hacks Agag, the king of the Malachites, into pieces. That's the chapter right before the chapter that we're in right now. People didn't mess with Samuel. He struck fear into people. Chuck Norris of Israel right there, right? They probably had Samuel jokes like we got Chuck Norris jokes. All right, the flu gets a Samuel shot every year. When the boogeyman goes to sleep every night, he checks his closet for Samuel. Right? Samuel didn't call the wrong number. You answered the wrong phone. I like that one right there. <laughs> Samuel was an intimidating guy. When Samuel strolls into town, unexpected, you can understand why the elders, the spiritual leaders of this town, were shaking in their boots. But he calms their fears. He says, I come in peace. They're like, whew. He prepares to offer the sacrifice. He makes extra sure Jesse and his family are there. And at this big service, Jesse lines up his sons, almost like beauty pageant style, gets them all dressed up, ready to show them off oldest to youngest. And the stage is set for Samuel to select the next king of Israel. And let's see how this plays out. Look at verse 6. When they came, he, Samuel, looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outer appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So Eliab, the oldest son, walks out first, probably the one in the lineup that looks most presidential, that looks most like a king. And Samuel says, Samuel immediately says yes, and God immediately says no. Not my guy. In fact, he rebukes Samuel right here. He says, Samuel, you're playing the same game. You're trying to find the GQ guy again. Right, You're picking based on external qualities, but I'm telling you, I'm looking for something different. Samuel, I need you to understand that I value something beyond the things that people in this earth value externally. I, I value something beyond the resume, beyond the looks, beyond all the external factors that people measure other people by, measure themselves by. Isn't that true? Isn't it true that what Samuel's doing here is the same thing that so many of us do and so many people in the world do even here 3,000 years later? In our sin, naturally measuring people and measuring ourselves by appearances. We primarily do this in three ways. Physical appearances, material possessions, social status, right? how we look, what we have, who we are. That's how we tend to measure other people. That's how we tend to affirm our own significance and value. We buy the lie that, that I am those things, that those things define who I am, that I am who I know. That, man, if I could just get invited to the cool kids table, then I'll finally be somebody. Then I'll finally be accepted. It's like when you're eight years old and you want to get invited to that kid's birthday party. That's all you can think about. My life will be complete if I can just get invited to that birthday party. I'll finally be accepted. Right? And that's one thing for an eight-year-old to deal with that. It's another thing for those same desires to, de- to be lingering in the hearts of 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds and on up. Still wondering, will I get accepted by the cool kids? Well, that's a weird game to play. We buy the lie, I am what I own. All right? I am what I own. 
If I just had that next, next thing, if I just had that next material possession, right? That's why some of us will scroll through on your phone. Uh, that's a confession. I do this sometimes. Get through like real estate sites just to look at other homes. Just take a look at them and imagine what it would be like to have them. Anybody ever do that on Zillow? Just scrolling through, scrolling through houses just to, just to dream a little bit, right? Not all of us. Maybe some of us are being honest out there. Anybody, are you just going to leave me alone up here? Anybody else out there ever do that? Now, how many of you... Just to be honest, when you do that, do you keep the filter at a reasonable number? You let that thing just creep on up before, before you know it. You're looking at three and a half million dollar homes on some Caribbean island, right? Thinking, hey, you never know. I might have a rich uncle. I might have a rich cousin who dies and passes me some money. Got to be prepared. No matter what that looks like for you, even if you're not scrolling through Zillow, at times we all still have these thoughts that can linger in our flesh to where we think, man, if I just had that next thing, that other external thing, a bigger house, a nicer car, a a more impressive you fill in the blank, then I'd really think my life would take off and I'd feel like somebody important. Some of us, by the lie, am how I look and obsess over outer appearances and think, man, if I could just, if I could just hold on to my youthful appearances and I could stretch and nip and, and tuck and, and, then, and then I feel like somebody special again. Or if I could achieve some shape or, or size and, and maybe it's deeper than like just staying healthy. That's good. Good to be a steward of your health and your body. But if I could just, it, but it's deeper than that maybe. It, if I could just achieve that certain shape and that size and that fitness level, then, I, then you really, I'd really start feeling like I'm valuable. I'd really start feeling like people notice me and that I'm liked and accepted. And it's an absolute trap of the flesh. It's a foolish game. Especially if you're a Christian, because it reveals when we do that, that we care way more about what other people think and what other people care about than what God ultimately cares about. Because God says, yeah, I'm I'm not mainly concerned about any of that. I'm concerned about what lies beneath all of that. I'm concerned about what lies underneath the network and the net worth and the external appearances. I'm concerned about your heart. God's not playing the game that we play. He isn't interested in finding a king who has the right resume, who has the right friends, who has the right wealth, who who has the right look, who has the kingly look. He's looking for a king who has a heart for him. And one by one, Jesse's sons step up, one after the other. And none of them had that heart that he's looking for. Look at verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, nope, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shamu pass by. That's how you say his name, Shamu. And said, said no to him. Like, we can't have a king named King Shamu. That's just not going to work, right? We'll be making free willy jokes the day he steps on the throne. Can't be King Shamu. Next. That was a joke. Y'all come on. <laughs> Let's keep reading. Seven of his sons passed before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet a younger. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Just like Samuel would say that. Everybody say, Yes, okay, we won't sit down. Samuel said it, we'll stand. And he sent and brought David in. Now he was ruddy and in beautiful eyes and was handsome. So, Seven of Jesse's sons walk before Samuel. Nope, 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 nope. Samuel's scratching his head, and he turns to Jesse and goes, Do you have another son? And Jesse says, Well, actually, I do. He's out in the field. But it's very obvious that no one in that room expected for that other son to be who God's going to pick to be the next king. Notice the way that Jesse describes him. Jesse doesn't think he's going to be there. Look at the way he describes him. He says, There remains yet a younger. That's the way he describes David. A younger. That word younger right there in the Hebrew, it literally means small, little, insignificant, unimportant. Wouldn't you love for your dad to introduce you like that? 
Well, I got one more son, but he's a little fella. He's not going to amount to much. In fact, we give him the lowest task in the family. He's out there looking after sheep. Also look at the way that his looks are described. I could spend a lot of time. It took forever figuring out what these words meant, but we don't got time to dig into all of it this morning. But when you collect these three words or these three phrases that are describing his appearance, ruddy, beautiful eyes, and handsome, right? it is clear that he's a good-looking guy. And I think that that's here in this passage to help them remember, like the answer to get a better king than Saul isn't to go find an ugly king. Like that's not the answer. That's, 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 that's surface thinking. That's not God's point, right? But what we do find, what's interesting here about his appearance, ruddy, beautiful eyes, and handsome, is it was a specific kind of good looks. And when you collect those words together, ruddy, beautiful eyes, and handsome, scholars say it's describing a baby-faced young man. In other words, David looks like he's a better prospect for a boy band than he is the throne and to be a warrior king on the throne of an ancient nation like Israel. And nobody in that room that day anticipated what was about to happen because everybody in that room, everybody in the nation expected Samuel to pick somebody who was tall, somebody who was strong, somebody who looked powerful, who looked like a king. But God was looking for something different. And David walks in and God speaks to the heart of Samuel and says, that's my guy. Because he has a heart full of affection for me. God wasn't concerned with all those external factors. He was concerned with David's heart. You say, well, why is that? Because Israel needed a king after God's own heart. Because having a king after God's own heart means that 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 heart would manifest itself in a life not marked by like kind of sort of obedience and disobedience that led to disarray. That kind of disobedience and kind of sort of disobedience that marked the life of Saul that ended in destruction. But a heart that genuinely loved the things that God loved. And that was a heart for God would be the kind of heart that would manifest itself in real obedience. A mark, uh, a life that would be marked by loving people and serving people and honoring God and leading well and being a blessing to the people of Israel. Not a burden like King Saul had turned into. And this leaves us with a clear reminder this morning that God is primarily concerned with your heart. How's your heart? Are you guarding your heart? Are you caring for your heart? Are you tending to your heart? Are you spending more time fixated on external things? And listen, I'm not just talking about obsessing over external health and fitness more than you're focused on the shape of your heart. I'm not just talking about chasing the next new thing to look impressive in front of a bunch of people instead of focusing on the thing that God cares about, and that's your heart. Those may be issues. If so, tend first and foremost to your heart. But in a room like this, on a sunny morning like this, this may actually hit a little bit more to home for some of us this morning. When it comes to your heart, answer this question. Are you trying to keep up a Christian reputation externally while there's a heart within you that is far from Christ? It is very possible to do all of the external Christian stuff and to lack a sincere, honest affection for Christ in your heart. Jesus does not want our checklist of external deeds. He wants our heart. When was the last time you recognized that? When was the last time you kind of got your focus off going on through all the right routines and all the right religious activities and looking the part and focused on, hey, I'm being faithful. I'm being consistent with my church attendance. I'm being consistent with all the religious activity. But when's the last time you recognized that God is focused on your heart? 
When's the last time you stopped worrying about how you looked in front of other people and checking off the list and got before a holy God and confessed the worst sins of your life to Him? And then thanked Him sincerely from a heart that just tasted His grace and His mercy once again for His grace and His faithfulness to pursue you once again in your sin. He's after that kind of heart. Because that kind of heart manifests itself in a life that's lived for His glory. So God's pursuing His people. God's picking the unlikely. He's concerned about the heart. And the third observation this morning is this. God is preparing the heart. God prepares the heart of this king. How will God prepare this king? Man, if I'm David in that room, because we've got to remember David has a nature just like ours. If I'm David in that room, think about what just happened in his life. He was out there tending the flock. He was out there doing a very lowly task. Just grinding it out as a shepherd. And he gets dragged into this ceremony. And all of a sudden he finds out he's the next king of Israel. He didn't wake up thinking about that that morning. At least we don't think he did. He's processing all this. If I'm David, I'm like, wait, whoa, wait a second. I, I don't know. Are you sure you got the right guy right here? I mean, I'm a shepherd. I'm not raising a royal family. I haven't been around kingly people, royal people. I haven't been trained for this. And if anybody in this room is... It, it, this seems to make sense for them to do. It's probably Eliab. He's older. He's got, he's got more of the qualities maybe that you're looking for. But God is going to be faithful to prepare this young man. By shaping and working on the most important part of David's life. That will lead to David making decisions that honor God. That will lead to David being a different king than Saul. He's going to work on his heart. And over the course of David's life, God will never stop working on his heart. He is going to fail. We're going to see some tragic, some major failures in sin in David's life. And when he does, God's not going to stop working on his heart. God's going to keep working on his heart. He'll never stop shaping and transforming and working on the heart of David. And there are two primary ways we see God shaping his heart here early in his life. That he continues, ways he continues to shape our hearts today. Number one, we see God shaping David's heart through his spirit. Through God's spirit. Look at verse 13. Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of, the, of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And this is the, kind of the climax of the passage right here. Samuel is sitting behind the next king of Israel. And God tells him to anoint David, the shepherd boy, as the next king. And the purpose of this ritual is twofold. It was to communicate symbolically that God's, that, that David's been set apart for a specific ministry by God. And it's also meant to communicate that God's power and God's presence and His Spirit would rest on this man in a very unique way. And so uh, just see the picture in your head. The, the, ram's horn, the ram's horn with the oils being poured out on top of his head. The oils running down his hair. It's into his beard. It's down onto his body. And it's an external sign, external sign of what's happening internally in the life of David. The oil's going to wash off, but the Spirit of God's going to stay on God's man. To empower him, to shape him, to sustain him, to prepare him for what God's planned for him. Which helps us remember something really, really important this morning. That David was no extraordinary superhero in and of himself. He was an ordinary man with a nature just like you and a nature just like me. But he knew he was ordinary. He knew how desperately he needed God's power to move in his life, especially in these early days. I think we read these incredible stories in God's Word about how these people like David and others, that God does these extraordinary things through, and we're like, man, I want some of that. It's, a, it's an inspiring book. 
Or we have God does these amazing things in these different people's lives that we read about in Scripture. I want some of that, man. We get the impression that this book is about a bunch of extraordinary people who did a bunch of extraordinary things for an extraordinary God. And we think, man, I want some of that to happen in my life. But when you walk through the pages of Scripture carefully, you see that all of these characters in God's Word had something in common. They were sinful, ordinary men, ordinary women who embraced their ordinariness their sheepliness and put their weak, ordinary life at the disposal of an extraordinary God whose spirit fell on them in a powerful way. And everything they did was a result of verse 13, the spirit of God rushing on them. What empowered Samson to kill a thousand Philistines with a jawbone? Was it military strategy? No, it was the spirit of God. What enabled Gideon with 300 men to beat an army of thousands? Was it strategy? No, it was the spirit of God. What empowered the early church after the ascension of Christ to go boldly into the world testifying about the greatness of God and the goodness of God and the grace of God and proclaiming the gospel even in the face of death itself in every corner of the Roman Empire? What, how did that happen? Acts chapter 2 tells us the Spirit of God rushed on them like a wind. The only way David will be a man who will love God and will chase after God and be a different kind of king because the, the, the way he'll do everything that God's going to call him to do will be because of verse 13. It'll be a result of the Spirit rushing on him. And so it is with us. God's Spirit is the primary way that we are transformed, that we are empowered, that we are prepared to do what he has planned for us. Are you embracing your ordinariness this morning? Are you aware of your desperate need for God's Spirit to transform your life from the inside out? God wants to shape your heart. Are you leaning into that? Are you, this morning, trying to get by on your own strength? Maybe this morning, you're trying to run on the fumes of yesterday's victories. Forgetting that every day is a day that I must yield myself up and surrender myself to the Holy Spirit with desperation in my heart and ask God to help me. The most powerful prayers that we can pray is a three-word prayer. God, help me. I don't have what it takes. God, help me. And I encourage you this morning, beg God to help you. Beg God to speak to you. Beg God to convict you. Beg God to stir in you. Beg God to transform you. God shaped David's heart through his spirit. Second thing, God shapes David's heart through seasons in the pasture. All right, think about where they found David. All right, he's in the field. And think about all this has happened. He's in the field. Now he's been anointed as the next king of Israel. What happens now? Certainly like a parade, right? Certainly like a major city tour. Like the next king of Israel. Like, let's go. No, he's back out in the field. Between verses 13 and 14, there's a blank space right there that you'll see in your Bible. In that blank space between verses 13 and 14, it represents a significant amount of time that passes before things really start ramping up and he starts taking steps towards the palace. And during that time, a significant amount of time that we see represented in that blank space, what is David doing? He's in the pasture. And what we learn is that David's time in the pasture, that David's time tending the sheep, David's time out there in those fields is where God prepares his heart for the palace. Chuck Swindoll says, you could put four words in that blank space. 
He says it like this. God's training ground for David had primarily four means. First word is solitude. A lot of time out there by himself in those fields. Second word is obscurity. David is unknown. Those shepherds were ordinary. They were not celebrities. So he's out there in those fields. It's, he's obscure. He's learning humility through obscurity. Monotony is the third word. Just doing the same thing day after day. Repetition. Fourth word is reality. He experienced some real things out there, right? He experienced some real dangers, some real threats. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, for real. Like he, he experienced the trials and tribulations out there in the wilderness, out there in the fields. And God uses all of this in his life to develop the skill and the character that he's going to need to be the king that God's called him to be. David didn't understand all of that in the moment. It was probably frustrating. We can understand. If I'm there, I'm thinking, God... I'm the next king. I'm supposed to be in the palace. I'm supposed to be in the palace as the next king of Israel. And I'm out here cleaning up animal mess. But what he couldn't see is what God could see. Is that through that time in the pasture, God's shaping his heart through the mundane, through the solitude, through the obscurity, through the monotony, through the reality of shepherding in the pasture. Hey, what'd you do today, David? Same old, same old. Basically what I did yesterday, to be honest with you. Like all these days kind of run together. And I woke up, took the sheep down there to the valley and gave them something to eat. And I took them over there to the brook, got them something to drink. That one right there had to bandage his wounds up a couple days ago, man. Dude got in the thistles again. This one over here, I've been nudging him all week. Man, he's a stubborn sucker. But we love him. Oh, craziest thing happened a couple days ago. A bear tried to attack these little fellas. I just had to jump in and fight him. I killed him. I killed a bear. I had a little time this afternoon to practice my sling. It's kind of been a boring day, but just trying to be steady and faithful with what the day brings. I had time yesterday to play on my harp a little bit and to write some music. We're able to see the whole story, aren't we? We're able to see that in the pasture that God's developing David's character and David's skill. Those sling skills are going to come in handy, aren't they, in the very next chapter. The songs that he's writing are songs that are going to encourage the hearts of Christians for centuries, for thousands of years. The bears and the lions that he's fighting are developing courage in the heart of this future king. Shepherding those sheep. It's it's shaping his heart as a leader. He's learning how to lead with humility and care and patience. Those aren't things you learn in the palace. That's what you learn in the pasture. And if we can clearly see that God is using the pasture to prepare the heart of this king, we can have confidence that as sons and daughters of God, that he uses our pastures to prune us and to shape us and to transform us for how he wants to use us. It's not easy to be in the pasture. It can feel mundane. You can feel forgotten. It can feel confusing. It can feel pointless. Sometimes you can have real, real moments wondering, God, what in the world have, are you doing? Have you abandoned me? Maybe you're like in a season like that right now. That feels maybe like you're not getting anywhere. Maybe you're in a monotonous season right near, right now. Let me talk to some of the young parents in the room because a big word over the pasture that you are in right now is the word monotony. Every day kind of feels like the same thing. 
you ask a young mom, hey, what did you do today? Well, I woke up, did the same thing I did yesterday, day before, day before, day before, day before, day before, same thing I'm going to do tomorrow. I woke up, I changed diapers, I made breakfast, I cleaned up the kitchen, then I went and cleaned up the mess that they made while I was cleaning up the kitchen, then we ran some errands, and I cleaned up the mess that they made in the car, and then I broke up a couple fights throughout the morning, even before lunch, I had to confess some of my anger to the Lord, then I made lunch, then they had nap time, I got the house reset, kids wake up, start dinner, eat dinner, clean up, bath time, Bible time, bedtime. And then I get up and do it all again. No applause. Not a lot of flash. But when you as a young mom, as a young dad, remain faithful in that pasture, seeking to obey Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily, ask for the Lord and not for men. You can have confidence that God is shaping your heart through that pasture. He's working in ways you cannot see. Who knows what God's going to do in the life of those kids? You just keep demonstrating ordinary faithfulness day in and day out and have the confidence as you look back and see how God used this pasture in David's life that he's using that pasture in yours. Students who are here, I know, I'm bringing it up. want to ignore it, but it's happening this week. You're going back to school. Parents are like, yay. Kids are like, no. There's a lot of monotony ahead of you this year. Another book to read, another paper to write, another class to take, and it feels like the same cycle day after day. Maybe you are in a job and you feel stuck. Hey, our pastures maybe look a little different for all of us, but this is true. At whatever stage of life you're in, throughout that stage, God will take you out to the pasture. Again and again, He takes us out to the pastures. And whatever that looks like for you, what I'm here to tell you is God has a way of preparing our hearts in the pasture, not the palace. David didn't waste his time in the pasture. He demonstrated steady, ordinary faithfulness day in and day out. Hey, in a few years, we're going to get there in a little bit in this study. In a few years down the road, David is going to be discovered in public by the nation of Israel as a godly, humble, benevolent, wise king. And the nation will all see in public his heart of God on display. His heart for God on display. What they won't see is that his skills and his character weren't microwaved. That he did, it wasn't, They didn't all come from a cram session that he did the night before he's crowned as king. It's all been slowly cooked into his life in private years out in the pasture. Completing tasks, sharpening skills, learning patience, drawing near to God, learning to wait on God, doing lowly tasks every day, dealing with the mess, walking through tests, walking through trials. God used the pasture to help train this king. And God uses the pastures in our life as well. What I'm not telling you this morning is hang in there in that pasture and you'll get you a palace. Hang in there in that pasture and God will make you the king of something. That's not the point. I'm not, I'm not the health, wealth, blab it, grab it, prosperity guy. I can't promise you that how your circumstances are going to change or if they're going to change at all. But I can promise you this, that wherever you're at, And whatever pasture you're in, you keep drawing close to the Lord. You keep focusing on being, uh, just demonstrating that ordinary faithfulness. And God's using whatever you're in right now to do the greatest work that He wants to do in your life. And that's to conform you more to the image of His Son. The image of Jesus Christ. Don't wish away, waste your time in the pasture. Be faithful in the pasture. Stop trying to chase the next season. It'll get here. Not sure what it's going to look like, but you be faithful in this season. God's shaping your heart. He's preparing your heart.
God shapes the heart of His children through His work, through His Spirit in our hearts. He shapes our hearts through seasons in the pasture. And what we're going to see in this study is that David's story points to a greater story. Jesus Christ. Has this sounded familiar so far? It should, if you know your Bible. Does David's story sound familiar? It should, because it's a shadow of a greater story. Who else was born in Bethlehem? Who else was born to a blue-collar family? No clout, no special connections. Who else was a king who didn't look the part on the outside? Isaiah said this about Christ, that he looked like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that, he should, that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. But you know what Jesus did have? He, he possessed what mattered. Like what David had, a, a heart for the Father. Uh, he had a heart that pleased God, but it was different than David. See, in Jesus, the Son of God, he had a heart that pleased God perfectly. David is flawed. God looks on the heart of Jesus and sees no sin. Like David, Jesus too will start his public ministry by being anointed by the Spirit at his baptism. And like David, he'll be immediately deployed into the wilderness, into a pasture, to be tested, to be tempted, and to be prepared for his ministry. But it's a greater ministry than David. He is a greater king. See, unlike David, Jesus will not just wear a royal crown, but he'll put on a crown of thorns. He's a king who will lay down his life for his sheep. And then he'll come roaring out of a grave and he comes out of that grave as a crucified, resurrected Savior offering forgiveness of sin and new life and a new heart to all the sheep in the world. We're sheep, by the way. Human beings are sheep who look to that great shepherd and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. Have you done that? If you have done that, I want you to think about something. You're in union with Christ. You're in Christ. And that means what's happened to him happens to you. He was anointed by the Spirit. When you come to Christ, he fills your life with his Spirit. And that's not like a next step thing after you trust in Christ for, your, for, for salvation. Like there's nothing else you need to do. Scripture clearly teaches us that once you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're filled with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and you get all the Holy Spirit you'll ever get. So Jesus is anointed by the Spirit. We come to Christ. He fills up us with the Spirit. Jesus is deployed into the wilderness to be prepared for ministry. We're deployed into the brokenness of this world. Jesus is deployed into this world with a purpose. He deploys us into this world with a purpose. And that purpose is to point this world and other sheep to the great shepherd that can save them. Amen. And the only way we can live out His purpose for our life is with hearts that are being transformed and shaped by the Holy Spirit in our life. In hearts that are trusting Him and surrendered to Him and seeking to be faithful to Him in every season, even in the pastures. Let's pray this morning.